This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 1.22, Because of People Like You, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, and it is said that I spoke not a word, but only waved my hand to indicate the podcast should continue. And I'm Nina, an anime fan with a weakness for music with horns in. Thank you this week to all of our patrons. Your support makes the podcast possible. And special thanks to our new patrons. B, Charlie Weeks, and Tim B. This is the last week to enter our New Year's 2019 giveaway. On February 1st, we are going to draw up our lists of every person who has written a review of the podcast, liked Mobile Suit Breakdown on Facebook, followed at Gundam Podcast on Twitter, followed at Gundam Podcast on Instagram, or joined us on Patreon at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. And then we will select the lucky winner. If you do more than one of those, you'll be entered more than once. And we've put together some really great prize packs, including copies of First Gundam, Gunpla, Frabo and the Orphans Band t-shirts, beautiful Gundam art prints, and some special secret bonus prizes that we have not announced yet. Last week, the white base barely escaped destruction after being forced into Makveh's trap by saboteurs and an overwhelming force of mass-produced goofs. Bright, incapacitated by exhaustion and nerves in the wake of Ryu Jose's death, was forced to delegate command to Mirai, who stepped into the role reluctantly and with difficulty before rising to the occasion during a tense operation to rescue Lieutenant Matilda's transport squadron from Xeon attack. Only with the arrival of a new modular support unit called the G-Fighter are Hayato, Amuro, and Kai able to drive off the Xeon squadron and rescue their allies. This week, we talk about episodes 24 and 25, 23 and 24 in the U.S., The Black Tri-Stars, and Odessa Day, and research rollerblades, hydrogen bombs, Japanese body language and hand gestures, fighter plane formations and maneuvers, more funerary rituals for soldiers, droop snoots, more kendo influence, and Japanese spies. But first, the recap. On the Xeon-occupied moon, Kaecilia berates her generals, ordering them to reallocate resources for the coming combat, mentioning both that Shar is now on Earth with the Mad Angler Squadron, and that some of her prized troops, the Black Tri-Stars, are being sent to reinforce McVeigh. The arrival on Earth of the Black Tri-Stars prompts General Revel to move up the Odessa Day operation. We learn that the double agent Judok is working in concert with Elran, when Elran finds Judok and tells him to warn McVeigh that the Federation attack is imminent. Amuro's crush on Matilda is obvious, but he's not alone. Many among the crew are smitten with the confident and elegant lieutenant. When an embarrassed Kai asks to take a picture with her, everyone nearby crowds in, Amuro included. Thrilled to have a copy of the photo, Amuro tapes it to the inside of the Gundam cockpit. 
Once arriving on Earth, the Black Tristars go in search of the White Base, setting off the base's perimeter sensors. It's everyone to battle stations, and with Sayla's experience of piloting the Gundam, she is requested to go to the hangar and pilot the new G-Armor. Left shorthanded on the bridge, Mirai calls Frabo in to replace Sayla on the comms station. Sayla and Amuro are quickly briefed on the G-Armor, and Matilda startles Amuro by blowing him a kiss just before they launch. Outside, the gun cannon and gun tank are struggling to hit the fast and agile doms, and the black Tri-Stars are getting closer and closer to the white base. The white base tries to move away from the battle, but there is a problem with the engines. Sayla and Amuro separate into the Gundam and the G-Fighter, as two of the doms reach the white base itself. The situation is looking dire when Matilda decides to sortie in her Medea transport, hoping to buy the engine repair team and the rest of the crew some time, and fend off the dom attacks. The Gundam is almost caught when the Black Tri-Stars fall into formation and execute their jet stream attack, but Amuro manages to dodge. When they try it again, he is ready, leaping out of the first dom's way and destroying one of the others. Matilda's Medea is backing him up, guns blazing. As the third dom jumps to attack the Gundam, the Medea collides with it, pushing it away, and Matilda orders the pilot to drive the dom into the ground. Before they can do so, the dom grabs hold of the front of the Medea, destroying the cockpit and killing everyone aboard before escaping. The remaining Black Tristars retreat, and after receiving word of the White Base's successful combat, General Revel announces that the Odessa operation will commence on the following day, at 0600 hours. A grieving White Base crew lie in its decks in a salute in honor of Lieutenant Matilda and her crew as they fly away from the scene of the battle. In the next episode, everyone on both sides prepares for Odessa Day. The two remaining Black Tri-Stars hold a memorial for their fallen comrade and vow vengeance. Sayla and Amuro launch in the G-Armor to provide reconnaissance. And Bright is back on the White Base bridge, with Frabo reporting to Sayla's old station. As Sayla practices in the G-Armor, she and Amuro spot the Xeon front line. They descend to keep from being spotted and notice a Federation plane leaving Xeon territory. Following from a safe distance, they see the plane land on Big Trey. Before landing themselves, they warn Bright and Mirai that they may have caught a spy. On Big Trey, Amuro confronts Elran, while some soldiers hold Judok in custody and listen in. Elran incriminates himself and almost shoots Amuro before the soldiers come in and arrest him. Amuro is overcome with fury, thinking of Lieutenant Matilda and others who have died because of Elrond's treachery, but the soldiers send him to the battle, reminding him that a court-martial will deal with Elrond. The Odessa operation has already begun. The White Base is under orders to attack the rear of McVeigh's forces, and Bright and Hayato are soon joined by Sela and Amuro in their fight against the Black Tri-Stars. McVeigh was counting on Elrond to betray the Federation and prevent a portion of the forces from joining the battle. Instead, his own forces are beaten back, and in desperation, he threatens to detonate a hydrogen bomb if the Federation does not withdraw. General Revel orders his forces to continue the attack, and McVeigh orders the missile launched. Amro defeats the Black Tri-Stars just in time to ride the G-Fighter up to the missile, slicing off its nose cone and effectively disarming it. The Federation has won, and McVeigh flees. The crew of the White Base are formally received by General Revel and his staff, now officially part of the Federation Armed Forces.
it has been two episodes since the death of Ryu Jose, the very traumatic death of our white base crew member Ryu Jose. And already we have another very significant character death. Matilda-san! You need to say that a couple more times with increasing desperation. Okay, I'm done. Okay. Matilda hasn't actually been a huge presence in terms of number of episodes Mm -hmm. or screen time even. Mm -hmm. Previously, she's popped up for sort of brief scenes that were important parts of other episodes. And then we have her and the Medea squad coming in with supplies and that episode. uh, Obviously, she's a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In the first of these two episodes, I feel as if they draw a contrast between her and Kaecilia. Because they have both of these characters make very strong statements about their personal philosophy with regard to the war. Kaecilia, we have this very brief scene with her at the beginning where it's her arguing with a bunch of old men. She's addressing a bunch of generals and she's dressing them down more than addressing them. She has some stark criticisms about their plans. She slaps one of them for talking back to her, for suggesting that the authority of the military is more important than whatever it is that she is ordering them to do. The impression that we get is that they're very concerned with the appearance of certain things, with getting vengeance, with appearing to have authority. And what Kaecilia says is, we can worry about your, I don't remember if she says authority or in the English, pride she says, or <laughs> in English, she says, we'll fix your honor after we win the war. Right. But sort of this total war attitude of, you know, all these highfalutin concepts, (laughs) you know, vengeance and honor and so on, don't have any place here. Those are luxuries afforded to the victors of war. We have to win first. On the other hand, you have Matilda, who Amaro asks, why did you join the supply corps? And her attitude is that war is all about destruction But people need something to live for. And a lot of that has to do with creating something new. Mm -hmm. And that in the supply course, she would get to create new things. That merely winning the war is not enough. You can't just win the war and worry about everything else later. Yeah. You have to build things. You have to take care of people. You have to give people a reason to need to win. So the episode opens with that scene with Kaecilia, which is brief, but very significant, feels very portentous. And I'll talk about that in a second. And then we get a fairly extended sequence of scenes on the white base that shows Matilda interacting with the crew. And it does a lot of heavy lifting to establish how important Matilda is to everybody there. I had two (laughs) competing feelings about Matilda's scenes. On the one hand, especially the scenes of all the young men who all have a crush on her acting that out feels like the writer's taking an opportunity to remind us how young they all are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, Especially with that scene where they all they all take a picture together. Mm-hmm. Kai wants a picture with her and he starts taking it. And by the time he actually gets his camera set up and he's taking the picture, there's like 25 <laughs> other crew members who have all uh, run in and gotten to the picture too. And it, you know, when Kai initially asks for a picture with her, it feels like he's meeting a celebrity. And it's like, I've had this crush on you, Matilda the Idol. And maybe we'll talk about idol culture 
culture and how it was just like getting started in the late 70s right then. But it's like, you're this person I idolize. Please let me take a picture with you. But then by the time all the other crew members join in, it looks like a class photo. It looks like Matilda is their teacher. And these are the like middle school boys. And you do see a lot of photos like this of army units, uh, especially from the Imperial Japanese forces of like the whole group gathered together. Very reminiscent of this picture. On the kinder to the writer's side of this, we have the contrast between her and these young people as a way to remind us again, in case we forgot when they were all in isolation, how young the white base crew is. On the other hand, (laughs) it does feel a little heavy handed at this juncture to be so in our face about all of these emotional connections right before they kill her off. (laughs) Like, look, audience, look at how much everybody loves Matilda, not just Amuro. Everybody loves Matilda, and now she's dead. Yeah, and that's sort of what I meant about the heavy lifting that it had to do in order to make Matilda feel significant to the white base, despite the limited amount of screen time that she's had. Because she's not Ryu. She hasn't been there the whole time. She hasn't been somebody who's been a part of their lives a part of their family. She is a bit of an outsider to the white base. And so in order to give her death some emotional heft, they really do need to take that time in order to build her up. And I think maybe it's a little manipulative. Maybe it's a little emotionally, um, like maybe it's a little cruel of the writers to build her up so specifically in order to kill her later this episode. But I do think they do it effectively. And it doesn't feel inauthentic, at least not to me, because it is consistent with the way everybody has acted towards Matilda throughout the time that she's been on the show. I mean, Amara is in love with her, obviously. But in that first scene, when she first appears, the whole male part of the crew is starstruck by her. Kai is going gaga over her and previous episode uh, so it fits i think i don't i don't disagree i don't think it felt shoehorned or like it didn't fit with the show Mm -hmm. it did feel like they were trying to cram several episodes worth of caring about matilda Mm -hmm. into one episode i agree and i make the point about it succeeding in matilda's case because i'm about to point out where it doesn't work and that's on the zeon side with the black tri-stars who are introduced in the first of these two episodes and completely eradicated by the end of the second one the black tri-stars like loom enormously large in the gundam canon they have a long shadow and yet in their actual appearance in this show in these episodes they're pretty pathetic yeah i want to come back to them because i have a couple other comments related Mm -hmm. to matilda uh one point to back up the idea that the writers were going to use matilda to emphasize everyone's youth to us again is sayla's particular reaction to matilda's death sayla venturing out in a machine she has never piloted before struggles And, you know, struggles rather a lot. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, in blaming herself for Matilda's death, she specifically blames her inexperience. So she's blaming herself for being young. Yeah. Yeah. In in a very real sense, every time any of them blame themselves for inexperience, they are blaming themselves for being young. Yeah, that's absolutely true. (laughs) Yeah. And it's not like Sela could have been practicing with the Brand G fighter or G armor or whatever configuration it was in at that technology. point. It had just arrived. There was no simulator for it. There was no opportunity to practice with it. Sela had only just been given the order to pilot it, you know, a couple of minutes before this happened. Yeah, someone hands her a manual <laughs> as she's getting in. <laughs> oh, if you've piloted a Gundam, it'll be easy. Uh, and I had never quite thought of it in this way before. 
But in most of these episodes where something goes wrong, you have our main characters essentially blaming themselves for not growing up faster. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've noticed in the last couple of episodes that Kai in particular has gotten really down on himself. And maybe he always was, but he sort of masked it with a lot of snark. But a couple of episodes back, we had Kai saying, I'm not the same person anymore. I'm not going to back down from this. Which is very positive about himself in the moment, but it bespeaks a certain negative feeling about himself and his behavior in the past. In a previous episode, when he was defending the Medea transports in the gun cannon, and he was calling on Amuro to help him with these dops and uh, goofs that were attacking, he says something like, Amuro, help, but I guess I should be trying to do it too. And now in this episode... Well, he calls himself a klutz. That's right. He's When he's trying to fight the doms and he's not able to take out these state-of-the-art, hyper-advanced Xeon mobile suits piloted by some of Xeon's best aces, says, oh, I'm such a useless klutz. Yeah, there's a there's that feeling of like blaming themselves for everything that goes wrong. He's another person who I feel like Matilda's presence on the white base gives us some good character development for him. Because she overhears him talking about how his ideal girlfriend would be like her, would be someone kind and elegant. And she overhears this and responds to it in a very, <laughs> she's like, oh, well, good luck finding, <laughs> finding an elegant girlfriend. And he acts deeply embarrassed, but old Kai would have said something impertinent or made a joke or tried to pass it off like he wasn't talking about Matilda. In this case, he pretty much just owns up to it and not just owns up to it, but having been caught anyway, approaches her about taking the photo. And uh, for those of you who are less familiar with Japanese language, Japanese language has a lot of special vocabulary and special ways of formulating sentences when you're being respectful, when you're being respectful to somebody whose social position is above yours. What's that called? It's called keigo. Uh, there's also special language you use in referring to yourself when you're talking to someone higher ranked than you, and, and that's very humble language. And he uses these when he's sort of begging the favor of having Matilda take a photo with him, which... Please, glorious Matilda, allow this worm to be in a photo with you. Not quite that bad, but... <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, glorious Matilda, allow this worm <laughs> to be in a photo with you. Yeah. And I don't believe we've ever heard anyone on the crew use that language before. Hmm. And here he is. And for all that he's a little frustrated with everybody jumping into the photo, he doesn't get mad. He still takes the picture, uh, which, <laughs> holy, holy cow, guys, remember Polaroids? <laughs> <laughs> Barely. Was, I bet a lot of our listeners do not remember Polaroids. It was 1979 and they were like, what is photo taking going to be like in, in the future? In the future. And by God, it's going to be Polaroids <laughs> with a timer in the camera. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just feel like we see more sincerity from Kai. We see more of his feelings showing through. I would say we see more vulnerability from Kai. Harkening back to some of your comments about his fighting, he has this little exchange with Hayato when Hayato's in the gun tank by himself for the first time. They've changed the controls so it can be operated by one person. And Hayato is like, oh, can I, I like, I like that the controls are up here, but can I do this on my own? And Kai's, hey, Hayato, are you going to be all right in there by yourself? Well, if you can manage on your own, Kai, I'm sure I'll be fine. And Kai has no response. No, he, he just, just laughs it off. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't feel the need to stab back. When you mentioned more vulnerability, I think he is allowing himself to get attached to this group and be part of the group mm -hmm. and get to know these people and care about these people. 
in a way that we would not have predicted from his first appearance on the show. He is, this is the family that he chose. Sort of. He chose to accept them being forced upon him by the necessities of war. The final character interaction with Matilda that I want to address is her interaction with Mirai. Mm. There's a brief stepping on toes where she gives an order on Mirai's bridge. Very inappropriate. And she corrects it almost immediately. She knows she messed up. Yes. Uh, but there is a beat where you're like, uh-oh, what's going to happen? <laughs> I just want to say in that earlier interaction, Mirai does not defer to Matilda, which I think is significant, given Mirai's lack of confidence in her own command in the previous couple of episodes and the high regard that everyone on the white base seems to have for Matilda. I think it's significant that Mirai does not defer to her at all. Mirai doesn't say anything inappropriate, but from the look on her face, from the look on both of their faces, and from the moment that passes between them, it's clear that Mirai is like, no. <laughs> what are you doing? What? What? What, what, <laughs> what are, are you doing? doing? Then later, after Matilda has told Frabo, oh, make sure my ship is ready to launch, Mirai wonders out loud if it's too late to help the situation outside. They haven't been able to launch the white base. There's engine problems. It looks bad. Mirai and Matilda share a look. Mirai sort of gasps, though it's entirely unevident at what. And right. after she gasps, Matilda looks sort of confused. And then Mirai sort of like closes her mouth and go, looks away. Oh, never mind. <laughs> and Mirai describes her, or who says it first, Matilda or Mirai, that Mirai is a worrier. Um, Matilda. Matilda says, oh, you're you a worrier, seem like a, you? you seem like a chronic worrier. And Mirai says, yes, people tell me that. The one thing that I could maybe think of is that when they were sharing the look, it occurred to Mirai that Matilda intended to go out and join the battle. Mm -hmm. And that in Mirai's opinion, that would almost certainly lead to Matilda's death. Mm -hmm. But even that feels like a bit of a stretch. I don't I don't really know what we're supposed to get from that scene. Yeah, it's a striking scene. It's not a small gasp. It's not a small thing, and it doesn't go unremarked. There's a lot of silence and close-in face shots. Yeah, there's a very, it's a very distinct scene. We're meant to notice that, and it's not explained. Yeah. There's no explanation for it. So maybe, as you said, we're meant to just think, oh, something about Matilda made Mirai think that she was going to go out. I, I don't buy that. I just, I, in an episode that is, and I'm going to talk about this later, but in an episode that is really good about showing through body language interactions between people and what they're thinking and feeling, there's nothing <laughs> in this scene that indicates that connection is happening. I think the other possibility is that Mirai has had some kind of premonition that something very bad is going to happen. And we know that Esperism is on the table. Yes. We know that Espers are a thing. Maybe that's what's going on. But it's not adequately explained, and it may never be, like many other things in this show. Um, does that cover Mirai? That covers Mirai. I would like to close talking about Matilda by talking about the salute at the end of the episode. Ah, in mourning, uh, in in honor of the sacrifices made by Matilda and all the members of the Medea Squadron who died during the battle. They line up all of the crew on the outside of the white base and they fly by the scene of the battle with everyone saluting. And they play a cover <laughs> of the opening theme, but slow and with horns and it's just beautiful. Tom is laughing because I have a weakness for music with horns in it. Uh, but it's the first time that we've seen that kind of moment for a past comrade. And I think that's reflective of the fact that 
is a fellow Federation army person, but also not part of their own crew and not someone that they knew very well. Yeah, it's a little similar to the funeral of Captain Paolo. That's true. I had forgotten about the funeral of Way Captain Way back Paolo. in episode four. And like Captain Paolo, Matilda was a career soldier, a Federation officer who was associated with the crew, but not really a part of this family that they've built. They didn't know him quite so well. It also, I think, speaks to the natural hardening. Everyone has become a little tougher, a little more callous. A little numb. Since Ryu died. We got on to talking about Matilda when I was comparing the work that the episode does for Kaecilia and Matilda mm-hmm. in the first half, which they're similar because both are all about setting up stuff to come. Matilda's scenes are all about setting up that scene at the end when she goes into battle. And I'm not even going to say she sacrifices herself because while she knew the risk of dying, I don't think, unlike Ryu, she did not intend to die. No. So the Matilda scenes are about setting that up. I think the Kaecilia scenes are doing a lot of work to set up the future of the show because mm. she's saying a lot of stuff that we don't have much context for yet. There's a lot of hints being dropped here. Well, we hear about Char. Yep. There's a mention of Char. She mentions heavy mobile suits. And we've heard the doms described as heavy mobile suits before, but saying heavy mobile suits instead of doms suggests other kinds. She mentions mobile armor mm-hmm. or mobiru ama and the practical application thereof. She mentions the Mad Angler Squadron. Mm -hmm. There's this discussion of military authority, which is all connected to some order that Caecilia has given that these generals find objectionable. We don't know what that order was. She also talks about, it sounds as if she is suggesting taking mobile suits from other groups and divisions on Earth Mm -hmm. for the use of whatever her... uh, her specific interest is. Right. Well, then we transition out of her scene with a little bit of narration that describes her as the occupier of the moon and tells us that the war is unsettled on all fronts. So that's basically just a a tangle of loose strings, which is going to be very important in a minute because (laughs) these two episodes really... These are payoff episodes. And with the exception of the stuff that Kaecilia gives us at the beginning of the first of these two episodes, by the end of the Battle of Odessa, almost every running story in the show has been concluded. You mentioned how sort of anticlimactic <laughs> the Doms feel that get introduced and killed off in two episodes. Well, the yeah, I guess the Doms and the Black Tri-Stars both. Yeah. They're, they're sort of inseparable at this point. And uh, I found myself contrasting them less with Matilda and more with the way the goof was introduced, mm-hmm. where we don't even know its name. Mm-hmm. And it's got all of these new weapons that we've never seen before. And mm-hmm. it's used so skillfully and is such a terror <laughs> Yeah, initially. Whereas, obviously, people are struggling to fight the doms, but they figure it out in short (laughs) order. Yeah. Well, and they they do so much work to try to make the Black Tri-Stars and the doms feel like a threat. A couple of episodes back, we got the first mention of the doms. The doms Mm -hmm. have been foreshadowed to us for a while. Now they actually appear. Kaecilia says, send the Tri-Stars. The narration makes the point that they are some of her most trusted, most prized soldiers. Yeah. And then we get a scene with General Revel receiving intelligence. The Black Tri-Stars are coming to Earth. And he just explicitly tells the audience, oh, the Black Tri-Stars, they're very tough. Well, they're the ones who captured him at Mm -hmm. one point. So we get all this setup of how tough they are. Yeah. And there are a couple of things about them that 
seem like they should feel scarier or more intimidating than they do. Yeah. They're way more mobile and agile than any of the white base's mobile suits. I thought... (laughs) Nina turns to me while we're watching this and she says, when did rollerblades get invented? They look like they're rollerblading. They do. And it could be based off of ice skating, which is obviously much older, but the, the style of movement feels very much like ice skating or rollerblading. So do you know what I have heard that they are based on? What? Kendo with the hakama and the gliding across the floor foot action. Oh, that makes sense. And then they've got the the mask and the armor and what is basically a shinai for a sword. Okay. I had also thought that the head portion looked a little like it's wearing a hood, but if you've seen the... If you've seen a kendo uniform, there is a kind of hood piece that fits with the face mask. So that makes sense. Um, yeah, the the most difficult, scary thing about the Black Tri-Stars just seems to be that nobody can hit them. Yeah, and that they work well together. Yes, they, uh, they do a very anime thing, which is they name their group attack, <laughs> the jet stream attack. Uh, but, and this is something I want to research, I would imagine that if you have a group of fighter jets that always go out together, while there are times when obviously you're, you've split up and you're just doing individual dog fighting, there are probably a handful of maneuvers that you do together. Yeah. So yeah, feels very much like an anime thing, but also a real thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a maneuver like that would have a name. Mm-hmm. But the thing about the jet stream attack is it seems like it should feel like a threat. But Amuro counters it the first time they do it. Yeah. And they say, oh, it's working. It's evidently not. (laughs) And the second time they try it, Amuro is able to kill one of them in the process. And I know it's supposed to feel like a threat because otherwise there's no point in Matilda showing up and interrupting their second jet stream attack. Yeah. But it, it just doesn't feel like a threat here. It is an awesome moment when Matilda like rams her Medea into the Dom and her last words are the orders, drive that Dom into the ground. Yep. And pretty horrifying when it then closes its fist over the cockpit of the ship. Um, I feel like if they had just let the Doms get closer to the white base, Mm -hmm. that would have felt more urgent and scary. And they've done that in plenty of other battles. Other mobile suits have made it to the white base. Yeah. Or show some damage on the Gundam, which they've done previously (laughs) when the goof got its heat rod wrapped around the Gundam. Like, I think the worst damage we see any of these guys inflict is when they cut off half of the gun cannon's foot. Yeah, and they blow up one of the gun tank's treads. Yes, that's true. And they destroy Shield Chan. Yes, several times. I feel like they destroy Shield Chan like a total of three times. (laughs) So yeah, uh, I also just didn't find it that cool looking of a suit. Don't really love the color scheme. Don't really love the design. There are better depictions of the Dom. Like, it's okay. What the Black Tri-Stars do give us, though, is a parallel to the white base. Because this is a team of three Xeon soldiers who clearly all really care about each other. Like the Rambaral team, these guys are like a family together. And a little bit like the white base crew with three mobile suits operating as a team. And then when one of them is killed in that first episode, they then go on to mourn him in the second episode. Mm-hmm. Much like the way the white base mourns Matilda or mourned Ryu. Yeah. And in fact, in that scene when Matilda is killed, what we actually get is not a bunch of people yelling, Matilda, no. We get that in the, the funeral scene. But in the scene where she's actually killed, what we get are the surviving members of the Black Tri-Stars saying, oh, he got mash. Damn it, we'll get revenge next time. I thought the funeral scene for mash 
was quite moving. I wonder if they, I mean, they name people out of all kinds of crazy things yep. in this show. But I wonder if that was a reference to the MASH TV show. Oh, maybe. Maybe. The first Xeon team we encounter in Gundam was named Slender, Denim, and Jean. So, you know, puns. And here we have Mash and Ortega. And Gaia. And Gaia. Not clear if there's any connection there. We also encountered uh, some teams named uh, Borscht and... Fried Chicken. Yeah, in the context, it sounded like those were scout planes. So they're clearly being named after foods because the last time we got the name of a scout plane, it was Hot Dog Patrol. Well, and all of them attached to Big Tray. Just putting no, big, that out there. Big Tray is the Federation one. These were all Xeon units. Oh, those were all Xeon ones? Yeah. Oh, nuts. I thought, Sorry. I thought all the food were... <laughs> were uh, that would be, attached to Big Trey. That would be too good. Uh, that would be right. too good. Um, I think it's Gaia who does the funeral speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's quite lovely. I wrote it down and I'm going to read it now. Well, and to preface, now that you found it in your notes, mm-hmm. they they have put Mash's gun into the ground with a helmet on it. Uh, it looks like just an infantry helmet. Yeah, Mash was incinerated, so his helmet is gone. But there is this marker And in addition to saying this sort of prayer that sounds like maybe something they have said before, it sounds not like an off the cuff Mm -hmm. statement, but a ritual. It's, oh, spirit of mash, may you soar into space and drift in eternal happiness. And then they also do something of a gun salute. They fire the guns of their doms into the air. McVeigh has no time for these shenanigans. Yeah, McVeigh, who is representing Kaecilia's win and then worry about everything else attitude. It's like, how long are these guys going to keep wasting ammunition and time? We mentioned Shield Chan earlier. The reason the shield is getting destroyed so much more now uh, is that in addition to the Gundam carrying it around and using it, it's strapped to the side of the G armor or possibly to both the G armor and I think just the G armor. Okay. well, it's strapped to the side of one of the plane things. (laughs) (laughs) And so it also is routinely shot at and uh, gets exploded (laughs) and then also gets cut in half at one point. The introduction of all of this stuff felt like less of an obvious, we need to introduce more toys. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's part of it. That's always part of it. Yeah. I went back uh, and reread some of my old notes, and I remembered that the main selling point for the sponsors convincing them to make this show before anybody had any idea what the show was going to be was this will be a show with a transforming mecha that can combine into many different forms. I mean, that makes sense. Uh, But when we got to like eight episodes in (laughs) and there had not been any transformations yet, the sponsors were probably like, excuse me. We were promised transforming. Combining. But it also makes sense that in addition to either in parallel to or shortly after the development of the three mobile suits that the white base carries, there would be a bunch of peripherals, (laughs) if you will, (laughs) and that they would obviously test those with the white base's mobile suits. It's not as if there are a whole bunch more Gundams floating around to test them with. Right. And we know from various comments, Federation officers have said that the white base crew is the most experienced in the use of these mobile suits of anybody in the universe. (laughs) Well, and Revel explicitly says, we can't use real soldiers to test experimental prototypes. (laughs) (laughs) Remember, kids, the Federation is not good. They're just better. Yeah. 
We get some indication that a lot of the functions in these new machines are automated. They talk about how, oh, the computer will guide the combination sequence. If the computer's not working, there's still some mechanism by which the pieces of machinery are like keyed to each other. And mm-hmm. so you still don't need to worry about it. Uh and yet it is still a manual control stick. It's not fly-by-wire yet. Sela is still having to physically haul on this very difficult-to-move control stick in order to fly the plane. Well, and and Amuro tells her, like, push down on the accelerator with all your might. She's, like, stomping down with her entire strength on this accelerator pedal. Uh, I suspect the cockpit was not designed for a woman. They do make it seem faster and more powerful than the core fighter. We've seen people pull some Gs on the core fighters, oh, yeah. but... I get the impression, based on the way it's animated, it is more powerful than yeah, the core fighter. They give it a real sense of weight. When Sela's trying to bring it around, for instance, it really does feel like it's heavier, harder to turn, has a wider turning radius. And when the Black Tri-Stars see it, one of them refers to it as a fighter bomber rather than a mere fighter. They also do a great job, though, of making it feel fast. Like when it flies directly overhead Mm -hmm. of the doms, it really feels like it shoots by. Yeah. uh, As if they were thinking about shooting it and didn't have time even to aim and get a shot off before it was too far. Mm -hmm. It's more like a jet. I mean, I know the core fighters are, like, strictly speaking, they are jets, but they don't behave as much like a jet as they behave like a World War II prop fighter. This one behaves like a jet. And for all that it looks silly, <laughs> the uh, G-Fighter, is that what it's called? Which version? The one that is basically a surfboard. Yeah, I think that's the G-Fighter. Okay. It looks silly because it basically looks like the Gundam on a kite-shaped surfboard. But from the very first time that Amuro had to take the Gundam out in Earth atmosphere, in Earth gravity, he struggled. It gave him a lot of problems. He's lost a lot of speed and maneuverability from having to be in Earth gravity to fight. He's weighed down by Earth's gravity. And... And getting some of that maneuverability back, being able to stay airborne rather than jump and try to do things while you're falling is clearly beneficial. Yeah. With the introduction of the new Gundam parts, with the new G armor, G fighter, etc., and Sela being transferred over to working as a pilot officially, we see a lot of people on the white base stepping into new roles and expanding the roles that they previously had. You know, Ryu's death means that Bright can't be the captain for a while. And so Mirai has to step up and be the commanding officer. Ryu's death also means they're short of pilot. Sela becomes a pilot, but Sela becoming a pilot means they need somebody on the bridge to take over Sela's position. And that ends up being Frabo. Hayato, because they're short of pilot, because it's just more efficient. The gun tank is reconfigured so that Hayato can pilot it alone. But Hayato talks about how he's not certain that he can do it alone. Kai, too, is needing to step up more and more. Everybody is sort of expanding what it is they have to do. We even hear Amaro mention that he is going to be the one responsible for the repairs on the new Gundam parts. Mm -hmm. They are really stretched to their limit and everybody is having to do more and more even than they did before when they were already seemingly stretched to their limit. I don't have any real basis for this, but I got such a like mother of small children returning to the workforce vibe from Frabo taking over the comms position. Yeah, I did too. And I was reminded of stories I read about like small kids, five, six year olds during the later stages of the war when Japan's manpower crisis was at its worst, who even at those ages were working in munitions factories. And of course, their mothers were too. Everyone, everyone was needed. 
it didn't make me think of that so much as maybe like 70s and early 80s women's mm. empowerment more and more women working mm-hmm. and in a positive light because you have all the orphans there cheering her on and encouraging her <laughs> although first one of them is like are you sure you can do it and she's like yes hush <laughs> she can do it because we're supporting her right And she starts out very nervous and gets more and more confident the longer she's in that position. I also feel like that position has changed her relationship with Amuro somewhat. Uh, I might be reading a whole lot into a very brief conversation. Oh, I think you're reading the right amount into that conversation. But he just respects her so much more (laughs) (laughs) now that she's doing something directly related to combat than he did when she was helping out with quote-unquote women's work, like taking care of the orphans or the food or the medical stuff. Uh, Throughout that episode, he actively ignores her three times. He pulls away from her at the beginning of the episode when he's showing Matilda around. When she tries to talk to him after Matilda's after death, after Matilda's right? death, yeah. When she and well, when she tries to talk to him at the funeral, mm. he ignores her. And when she tries to talk to him after Matilda's death, he ignores her. And then when she's working on the bridge and they're talking over the radio, he talks to her as though nothing has passed between them at all. I feel like when she is doing things for him, like bringing him food, he often just barely responds. Mm-hmm. But now that she's in this new position, he's saying, you know, don't worry, you've got this. Just keep telling me what's happening in the battle. Tell me everything that's happening. Uh, and the I looked up the last thing that he says because I was curious about the translation. He says, tanomu zo. And tanomu, it's not quite I beg of you, but it's tanomu is like making a request. But the way they translate it is he's like, okay, do this and this and this. Got it? And I thought that was curious. It turns out that ending zol is a a way that men can end sentences to emphasize their strong feeling and to convey that to another person and make sure they understand. And so he is making a request of her, but he is also really emphasizing like it's very important that you do this. It's very important that you tell me everything that's going on in the battle. Uh it still felt much more, it felt a bit like an acknowledgement that, okay, we're in this together, which we've never really had before between him and Fra. Yeah. I don't think. It may be that when Fra is doing domestic mother things for Amaro, Amaro sort of disdains her because Amaro hates his mother. I mean, there's also like, don't even get me started. (laughs) I will start a little bit and then stop. (laughs) There's a lot of cultural disdain for women's work. And there are a lot of people who don't value things that women do in that way. Sure. But in the show, a lot of characters express a lot of appreciation for that kind of work. That's fair. Amaro doesn't. I think this is specific to Amaro. I think this is Amaro's mother complex and his like resentment for women who fill that traditional mother role for him. And that's what Fra does or has been doing. Mm -hmm. But now, Fra has become battle mom. Fra has a job. And Amuro loves battle mom. (laughs) Oh, he has that sweet scene with Sela where he's encouraging her. Yes. And he's like, well, it's what you always say to me, right? (laughs) Yeah. That was cool. That was really good. They make a good team. (laughs) 
One thing I noticed, and this is limited to the first of the two episodes, but there are numerous times throughout this episode where various characters make particularly distinct or revealing hand gestures. And this is throughout the whole episode. So I noticed in particular when Kai is very embarrassed in the beginning, he performs a salute to Matilda, but it's a terrible salute. (laughs) And you know it's a terrible salute because what he does is he's like, he's got his hand cocked at a weird angle and like the palm facing forward. Later, when he's saluting at her funeral, he's doing the same salute as everybody else. Very sharp, proper proper salute. But at the funeral, the orphans are all doing that awkward, bad salute that Kai was doing earlier. So you know within the context of the show, that's an improper salute. Also, in that same saluting scene at the funeral, Haro has opened up both the flaps overhead. (laughs) That's Uh, a Haro salute. That's a Haro salute. When Matilda and Amuro are having their conversation and Amuro sort of says, I think you're very strong. And Matilda takes a moment and then sort of flicks his head like and says, cheeky, cheeky boy. Um, it's a it's kind of a weird it's like she's doing the she sort of like taps him. No, I think it's her first two fingers. I think is I think it's separated. We'll have to check it again. But she's just like a weird gesture that isn't quite like or maybe a the flick middle or a two. tap. I think it's together. Mm-hmm. But her hand position is kind of odd. And she sort of like taps or flicks him on the head. Yep. And he just goes a little cross-eyed and startled. <laughs> and that feels like it's a familiar gesture to her and perhaps that the audience is meant to recognize it as well, although I don't. We didn't because it's not a common gesture in America. Earlier in the episode when Amaro first offers to show Matilda around, he does this thing with his, his finger sort of crooked underneath his nose. Sort of covering his mouth. I wondered if mm. he wasn't kind of like covering up his smile. Mm-hmm. And then right before he goes out, the last interaction he has with Matilda, which they show us twice because he remembers it, is her blowing him a kiss. And when that happens, it's while the hatch is closing. And they do a thing with the sound effect, which makes it sound kind of like a record scratch when she (laughs) blows him the kiss. Like Amaro's just like, what? (laughs) Uh, And then at the funeral, right before giving his brief speech, Bright coughs and covers his mouth, which is the most recognizable of all of these gestures. And then the last one I noticed is that when General Elrin is sort of awkwardly congratulating General Revel for the White Base's defeat of the Black Tri-Stars, Revel kind of pats the side of his head. And I'm not sure what that's supposed to mean. It doesn't quite look as if he's, it doesn't look as if he's smoothing his hair. Yeah, it's kind of an odd one. Yeah. And all of these feel very significant. They feel and, natural. Yeah. And watching them, even not knowing them from a sort of intimate cultural understanding perspective, you can still get a sense of emotionally what they're supposed to mean. But that may be something that we want to look into. Your mention of the fact that they show us Matilda blowing a kiss twice reminded me. I thought it was particularly lovely. The second time they show that, it's because Amaro is remembering it and they add a distortion mm. to the scene. They've, they cut the sound and they add this distortion that I was pretty sure was meant to convey Amaro's eyes tearing up mm. because it, it feels sort of like water, the mm-hmm. distortion to the image, mm-hmm. which... Dang. Yeah. Well, and the episode ends with him screaming her name internally, and there's no evidence that he ever stopped screaming her name. He might still be screaming today. Don't tell me that. If Amuro is still obsessed with Matilda-san by the time we get to whatever <laughs> other series contain Amuro, I'm going to be mad. How do you know other series contain Amuro? Has anything been spoiled for you? I have seen images of a slightly more grown-up looking version <laughs> of Amuro, so I assume... That's fan art. Unreliable. Don't trust it. <laughs> Thank you.
And now, Odessa. We finally, finally get to Odessa Day. This is big payoff. We've been moving towards the Battle of Odessa for like half the show at this point. When did they first mention it? It was early. I think the first mention of Odessa specifically is the episode where they encounter the Federation messenger in the desert. Mm. And I want to say that that one was Sailor's Agony. So episode 16. That sounds right. So nine episodes ago, Odessa was mentioned. But the previous like four episodes before that were them heading to this rendezvous. Yeah, so it's finally here. This is their first large battle that they're involved with for the most part. (laughs) What about for the most part? The white base has only, up until this point, been involved in conflicts that were just white base v. enemy. Yeah. There wasn't anyone else involved. There wasn't any other strategy involved other than destroy X or get out of situation alive. (laughs) Yeah. I sort of enjoyed how they gave us a sense of that because we would cut from the battles the white base was involved in, which feel small, to the big map Mm -hmm. of all the troop movements. And it looks like the sort of map you would see in a documentary about the war. Right. You've got all of these, you've got the map and you've got all these divisions represented by colored bars. And then you have the big thick arrows and they're drawn moving across the map. And you get this sense looking at it all of a sudden like, oh, the white base is one of these. And all across this battle line are more. And we even hear snippets when it cuts to McVeigh at one point of such and such group, you're too far ahead, you know, come back and join the rest of the line. Like, mm-hmm. oh, we have to reinforce this other point. You know, the again, that feeling of where we are is very small, but there's a lot happening yeah. just off camera. I love when they do that. <laughs> they did a really great job on a pretty small budget of representing that larger scale. And we have these moments when we see Federation fighters flying overhead Mm -hmm. um, and Federation tanks moving into position and all the Federation command ships and these big like land cruiser caterpillar battleships. My first thought as that episode closed was, okay, are we finally going to find out if there was anything more to the mines? (laughs) (laughs) Because McVeigh has this very ominous line early on about how nobody can learn what's really going on in the mines or what the mines really are. And so what I'm expecting is in the next episode or two, we find out these were actually research facilities or they were actually full of loot or I don't know. But maybe they will <laughs> never come back to it. Maybe my- maybe that thread will be dropped. Yeah. Uh But it does bring me to McVeigh. He is going to be flicking that vase all (laughs) the way home. What a creeper. Uh, The big thing that happens with McVeigh is that he threatens the Federation with a hydrogen bomb, which he says explicitly is totally against the Antarctic Treaty. He doesn't care. (laughs) Like we talked about last time, McVeigh being cartoonishly villainous. Yeah. I don't care that it's against the rules. I want to win. Well, but does he fit more with Hycelia's attitude or does he fit more with those other generals? Because on the one hand, there's a ruthlessness to that of being willing to do whatever it takes to win the battle. What he tells General Revel is we don't want to lose. We know it's against the rules, but we don't want to lose. What he says to Uragang is having threatened them with it, we have to show them we're willing to use it. We can't make the threat and then not use the bomb. Yeah. Well, and what he says, at least in English, is this is how the game is played which is pretty cold when you're talking about launching a nuclear weapon. Right. A weapon that Bright describes as a weapon that must never be used. But the the bit about we mu- we have to show them we're serious feels more like posturing and less like we're doing this to win. Mm-hmm. 
So I guess I get the impression maybe he falls somewhere in the middle. Yeah. I also wondered, though, because Bright says to Amuro, you know, we have 30 seconds to deal with this bomb or before the bomb launches. Mm -hmm. It will kill us all if we don't disable it. So could McVeigh even have gotten away safely or would that have been a suicide attack? I don't know where he is I have to assume he would have been able to get away. He doesn't seem like the type to sacrifice himself in that way. Fair. So maybe he shot the missile in one direction and flew in the other <laughs> direction. Uh, there's a really neat little scene after McVeigh has made the threat, but before the decision has been made, where they cut to Big Trey <laughs> and to General Revel. And there's a narrator again, and we almost never get narration except for at the beginning of an episode. It's very rare that mm -hmm. we have narration mid-episode. And the narrator is saying, oh, it was said that General Revel didn't speak, but waved their hand to indicate that the attack should continue. And it, it gave me this sudden sense that we don't get through the rest of the show, but of suddenly wondering... Is some veteran sitting us down to tell us all about <laughs> yeah. the war? Like <laughs> Because most of the rest of the time, the narrator feels omniscient. Mm -hmm. The narrator knows everything. Mm -hmm. But to say it is said of General Revel, that suggests that suggests an unreliable narrator, a narrator who doesn't know everything and is relying on other stories, other sources. This is the only time we've had that particular rhetorical trick used in the narration. It's very interesting. I liked it, but it, it jarred me from the story a little bit in giving me the sense that we're not just there watching it happen. We are, in fact, someplace else hearing about what happened. Yeah. Yeah. It takes the narrator out of the present and places the narrator somewhere in the future. Yeah. Which, spoiler alert, means that some humans survive. <laughs> oh, miraculously. The other big thing about Odessa Day, and I think the biggest uh, loose end that gets tied up at the end of these two episodes is that between Amuro catching, I'm going to say two of the spies, because I assume there are in fact more spies and double crossers, but between Amuro catching those two and their successful participation in Odessa Day and their disarming of the, the H-bomb, they no longer feel like outsiders. They show at the that last scene is the whole white base crew arrayed in full uniform, shaking, and Amuro is shaking hands with General Revel. And we see some of the command structure there with the general arrayed on the other side. But it feels like an acknowledgement on both sides of, okay, you're really, truly part of the Federation now. Yeah. You're not just some upstarts who we're putting up with because it's useful. Uh, and that's been a big thread <laughs> through these last 20 some odd episodes mm -hmm. that sometimes you're an outsider and sometimes you're not and you're tied to them, but you're not beholden to them and you have to follow some of the rules, but not others. And this feels like it's probably an end to a lot of that. Yeah, it's at least the climax of that arc. Along with many of these other, you know, like I said, this story, this episode gives us the payoff for all of these storylines that have been going on for a long time. What is going to happen with Amuro's crush on Matilda? Oh, she's going to die. That's what's going to happen there. What's going to happen with Sela wanting to take a more active role in the fight? Oh, she's going to become an official pilot. What's going to happen with Bright not being able to serve as commander? Oh, he's going to come back almost unremarked and be the commander for the Odessa operation. Is Fraubo going to remain a civilian only on the white base or is she going to become a member of the crew? She's going to become a member of the crew. And then the whole Odessa operation, the threat of these dreaded Xeon Black Tri-Stars, even though it's only established in the previous episode, we're going to get that payoff for that in the Battle of Odessa. 
And I'm sure there's a half a dozen other threads that I'm missing right now that all do get tied up here. It really feels like this episode is the ending to this first half of the series. And although the series is going to end up being 43 episodes, it was originally intended to be longer. And so this 25th episode, The Battle of Odessa, really feels like the midpoint. But it's not. It was supposed to be 52 episodes. So the next episode is the true midpoint of the show. Of the intended show. Exactly. Not the the actual show. Right. But the story they intended to tell next episode, something is going to happen in the next episode that is going to be the end of this first half. This week saw our first mention in the Universal Century of hydrogen bombs uh, and a funny slash very scary scene (laughs) where Amaro is shown a diagram of the bomb and told, oh, if you just cut right here, (laughs) then you'll disable it. If it's really a hydrogen bomb, we don't know. Also, if it really is and you don't manage it, we'll all die. So... (laughs) Which made me realize I actually know very little about hydrogen bombs. I know they're related to nuclear bombs, but I didn't know anything beyond that. And was it true? Could you just sort of cut the nose cone off of one and render it inert? Only mostly inert, because as we noticed in the episode, it does still do some exploding. Yes, uh, but not the destroy everyone within a large radius. (sighs) exploding. The difference between a hydrogen or thermonuclear bomb and a nuclear bomb is that in a hydrogen bomb, detonation of a fission primary stage is used to compress and ignite a secondary fusion stage. The first full-scale thermonuclear test was conducted by the United States in 1952. The design currently in use is called the Teller-Ulam configuration. Because of how most of the specific information about hydrogen bombs is classified, the public information is mostly from vague press releases, leaks, informed speculation, and reverse engineering. One source that probably influenced the diagram shown in the episode is a photo that was released of a bomb casing showing a smaller piece at the nose attached to a larger cylinder. Department of Energy policy is to neither confirm nor deny any leaks about hydrogen bomb technology. Speculative cutaway drawings, like the one shown in the episode, have been around since the 1950s. And the Department of Energy confirmed the basic premise that a fission primary is used to trigger a thermonuclear reaction in fuel referred to as a secondary in 1972. There was a federal legal case, United States of America v. Progressive Inc., in 1979, where the Department of Energy attempted to prevent the publication of an article which claimed to reveal the quote-unquote secret of the (laughs) H-bomb. The information was gathered from publicly available sources, and the case was eventually dropped, but it feels very likely that Amaro's comments about the inadequacy of the diagram (laughs) for his purposes are a reference to the fact that even though the Department of Energy was prosecuting over this information and trying to keep as much of it classified as possible, even once that information was out, it wasn't enough for anyone to actually use it to make a bomb. Amra's line feels a little bit like it might have been an inside joke for Sunrise. Like some animator was told, go draw me a diagram of a hydrogen bomb. And he did his (laughs) best. And whoever gave him the assignment was like, what is this? Do you expect a diagram like this to be useful? Regarding the mechanics itself and the explosion that Tom pointed out that we saw, by separating the primary from the secondary, the secondary wouldn't be compressed uh, and just would not have that initial reaction, that initial heat to jumpstart fusion. (laughs) 
So you would have a bunch of nuclear material, you'd have a bunch of radioactive material, and you would have these two pieces that would then plummet to Earth and explode when they crashed, but they wouldn't jumpstart the nuclear reaction that powers the, the huge size of a thermonuclear blast. Tom pointed out that in this episode, we see some body language and some hand gestures that are probably based in Japanese culture. Uh, they were not gestures that we necessarily recognized, although from context, we can kind of get at the meaning. So we dug in. It turns out there are a great many fantastic resources if you're interested in learning about Japanese gestures. Uh, one of the first ones is one that I'm used to from anime, and so I didn't even think of it. But when Kai gets caught talking about Matilda, he does the embarrassed hand on back of head. <laughs> <laughs> When Amuro uses his fist to cover his mouth after he has talked about going to the bridge with Matilda, how he's going to show her a shortcut, uh, it's very common in Japan to cover your mouth when you're smiling or laughing. However, he also does this thing where he kind of crooks his pointer finger, his index finger, which it turns out uh, <laughs> is a, a hand gesture that references like sort of thieving <laughs> or shoplifting uh, among a couple of other meanings. Obviously, Amro hasn't stolen a physical item, but I think it's possibly meant to indicate he knows he's getting away with something. He knows he's doing something a little bit sketchy and that he shouldn't be. <laughs> I mean, he's skiving off of work. He's sneaking some one-on-one -on -one time with Matilda-san. After she's already told him she does not need his help to get to the bridge. <laughs> and like, I don't think he actually shows her a shortcut. I think he just walks her to the elevator. And finally, we have Matilda sort of tapping or poking Amaro on the forehead, which it turns out is an affectionate gesture. <laughs> uh, it's called Dekotsun. In 2015, a company surveyed a bunch of women to find out their favorite and least favorite romantic gestures. And this was listed among the bottom three. <laughs> <laughs> when I looked it up, I also found some fan discussion of the fact that this gesture appears in, I think, Naruto. And in that case is an older brother doing it to a younger brother. So it's possible that it is affectionate without necessarily having romantic overtones unless mm -hmm. you already have romantic context. So when she taps him on the head and calls him cheeky, in this case, it's more of a big sister, younger brother, you're being silly, but I like you. She knows that he's interested in her, but he's too young for it to be serious, right? He's just being cheeky. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is right after he has complimented her, right? Yeah, I think you're strong. <laughs> I couldn't find anything more specific about Dekotsun, even in some books that I found about Japanese gestures. So if you happen to know anything, do let us know. We're also not entirely certain what Dekotsun literally means. Deko is like Brow. forehead. Yeah. Tsun is less clear. It could be a shortening of a word that means like to break or to pierce, but that seems pretty violent. There are a lot of onomatopoeia that have tsun in them. Uh, there are a lot of words that have that sound, tsun. <laughs> so, and unfortunately, dekotsun did not show up in any of the dictionaries we checked. Among the many running storylines wrapped up in these two episodes, one of the most important for Amuro and the war as a whole is the unmasking of the traitorous General Elrin and the double agent Judok at a crucial moment, just before the culmination of McVeigh's plot to defeat the Federation assault on Odessa and crush Revel's forces while Elrin holds back. 
It's crucial for Amuro because he finally puts together that all of the danger Matilda has been in, every Medea shot down, every one of her officers killed, and at last, the Doms discovering the White Base's hiding spot and launching the attack that ultimately costs the lieutenant her life, that has all been possible because of the intelligence Judoc has passed to McVeigh. It's a wonder that Amuro didn't just beam saber the whole big tray. Each of these men, I believe, has analogs in Japan's history. I'm going to talk about Judoc today, and hopefully we'll have time to come back to General Elrun either next episode or in one of our bonus episodes. So for this, we return to the early days of the Pacific War, December 1941 to February 1942. At the same time that the mighty Japanese first air fleet raided Pearl Harbor, the well-prepared Japanese army launched an offensive on all fronts against the Allied forces in Southeast Asia, including landing troops in Malaysia and Thailand, in order to threaten the British stronghold called Fortress Singapore. In classic British Army fashion, and in a move that is somehow both the height of racist colonialist nonsense and a perfect encapsulation of all the problems that led to them and the French being beaten in Europe by the Germans more than a year ago, the massive British Army defending the peninsula was overconfident in its own defenses, assumed incorrectly that the jungles of the peninsula were impassable, underestimated the importance of air power, and considered the Japanese to be, quote, little men, poor soldiers who could do all right against other weak people like the Chinese, but would stand no chance against proper British Empire soldiers. <sighs> so while the Royal Navy was confidently sailing its mighty capital ships directly into disaster without air cover, and the army was being outflanked and pushed back on all fronts, the Royal Air Force was encountering its own difficulties. Japanese aircraft were attacking the RAF airfields, and when the RAF squadrons retreated to different airfields, those were attacked too. The Japanese always seemed to know where they were, but what was worse, the Japanese had somehow figured out the RAF's recognition code system, and were declaring themselves to be friendlies in order to fool the airfield defenders until the last possible moment. Even though the codes changed every 24 hours, the Japanese always knew what they were. Soon enough, during an air raid, some in one of the squadrons realized that one of their own, an army captain attached to the squadron, was not in his trench. They went looking for him and discovered not him, but a radio in his quarters, still warm, and a Morse code telegraph disguised as a typewriter. That army captain was Patrick Heenan, born in New Zealand, raised in Burma, and educated in England. By all accounts, there was always something a little off about him. He was described as a gloomy, resentful misfit, disliked by his peers and his teachers alike. He seems to have performed adequately well at everything that he actually did, including athletics, then officer training in England, and eventually some army service in India before the war. But he was disliked everywhere he went, and was frequently assigned to new postings just to get him out of whatever unit had been saddled with him. It's not known how or why he became a Japanese spy, but he did spend extended leave in Japan a few years before the war. And Japan was, at that time, actively recruiting spies from within the British and American armed forces. Heenan seems to have disliked his compatriots in the British Army just about as much as they disliked him, and in fact to have disliked the British Empire as a whole. During his time in the British Indian Army, he seems to have become sympathetic to the cause of Indian nationalism, becoming friendly with some Indian nationalists who were also in the army, and frequently speaking up against racism and colonialism. So while we don't know why exactly he turned a traitor and started helping the Japanese, it's reasonable to assume that it had something to do with his general antipathy towards the British colonial establishment. And it may simply have been the case that when it came to striking a blow against Britain, the Japanese were the only game in town. That being said, Indian nationalists at the time were not supporters of Imperial Japan. 
So there's no easy and direct link between his support for Indian nationalism and his decision to become a Japanese spy. So after his discovery, Heenan was arrested and probably court-martialed sometime in January 1942. But by then, the Japanese were on Singapore's doorstep and knocking. In a move straight out of anime, Heenan reportedly began taunting his guards, telling them that the Japanese would soon capture Singapore and then he would be free while they would be his prisoners. Allegedly, once it became evident that Singapore was going to fall, the military police guarding Heenan took matters into their own hands and executed him themselves. <sighs> The squadron that bore the brunt of the damage from Heenan's treachery was Number 62 Squadron RAF. They were a bomber squadron when Heenan was with them, but thanks in part to his treachery, they lost almost all of those bombers and most of their pilots. The squadron was so badly damaged, in fact, that they had to be reformed and shifted roles, becoming first a reconnaissance squadron and then finishing out the war operating as a supply transport squadron. This is a silly little tidbit, but when I saw the way the doms moved, it made me think of rollerblades. Uh, so I looked it up. It turns out the very earliest skates were inline skates, invented sometime in the 1760s. I would never have believed that inline skates preceded roller skates. I wouldn't have thought so either, but it makes sense when you think about them being based off of ice skates. And so you were going to strap <laughs> wheels to the bottom <laughs> of your regular boots or shoes. It might not even occur to you not to have them be in a line. The quad skate came out in 1863 and became popular because it was easier to use and to control. It wasn't until 1966 that inline skates started to come back, and the design we're familiar with, four wheels extending in front and in back of the boot, like the blade of an ice skate, became standard. Inline skate is the generic term. Rollerblade is actually a brand name. <laughs> oh, let's stop saying it then. And the uh, Rollerblade Company was founded <laughs> in 1980. Uh, inline skates were certainly around in Japan before then. I saw several old pictures. I still think Tom's description of them as meaning to mimic uh, the movement of kendo practitioners is probably correct although it could also be based in ice skating i i picked up on inline skating because i thought that inline skating was maybe getting to be popular right about then and so it would have been like a cool hip thing to reference but who knows <laughs> as nina just reminded you i think that the doms look distinctly like people wearing kendo armor i'm going to post photos in the show notes and on our social media just so you can see how similar they are but the most distinctive parts of the Dom's design, like the flat face with the cross-shaped mono-eye area occupying the whole area of the face rather than just a slit at eye level, like on the Goof and Zaku, the strapped-on looking body armor, the wide armored skirt and the wide legs, all correspond to pieces of the Kendo armor. There's the Kendo face mask and helmet, which are called Men, the body armor called Do, an armored skirt called Tare, and many pleated wide-legged pants called Hakama. The Men helmet includes flat, protective flaps on the sides that cover the sides of the neck and extend out over the shoulders, just like the Dom's pauldrons. The Dom's heat saber looks a bit like a Kendo Shinai, which is a straight bamboo sword surrogate. Note also the colors of the Dom's head. The helmet itself is predominantly black, but there is a red rim around the edges of the mono-eye face section. The mono-eye moves on a track that is cross-shaped. In Kendo, while the men can be purchased in a variety of different colors, the most overwhelmingly common design is black or very dark navy for the helmet with a bright red rim called Daiwa around the face mask. And the face mask itself is composed of horizontal metal bars which cross a single vertical one, forming a kind of cross pattern in the grill a little bit like the Doms. 
Now for the way the DOMs move. This is very distinctive. You might even say that it is what defines them as a mobile suit. They're repeatedly described throughout these episodes as being heavy mobile suits, and they're significantly larger than either the Zaku or the Goof, yet they're shown moving with a speed and agility that neither of those suits could muster. They sort of skate around on their jets so fast that the by now quite experienced crew of the white base can't hit them, and because they're skating, we see very little actual leg movement. None of those awkward running mobile suit scenes we got from the earlier Xeon suits, or even the Gundam's weird jump flying that it does. And that movement, too, has a kendo parallel. Kendo, even more so than most martial arts, emphasizes precise footwork. A kendo strike, even a strike that would have killed a real opponent in a real duel, will not be scored unless it is delivered with proper footwork and good posture. Kendo footwork encourages numerous small steps, and when this is combined with an unwaveringly upright posture and voluminous hakama trousers, a kendo fighter can glide across the floor at great speed while showing almost no movement of their legs. One final parallel. Kendo competition, called Shiai, is often organized around a battle between two different teams of five to seven kendo fighters. The first in one team fights the first in the other team, and then the second fights the second, the third the third, and so on, until the last fights the last, and the points accumulated during the matches are counted. It's only a team competition, then, in that the points are counted together to decide which team has won or lost. Everyone fights their opponent alone. But that is not how Shi'ai has always been fought. I was not able to find a good source for when the shift to that style of Shi'ai competition happened, but at least as late as 1937 and probably afterwards, Shi'ai was organized in what was called Kachinuki, or knockout style. And in this competition, a competitor who won their match would stay up and fight the next member of the opposing team. If they won that match too, they would fight the third, and so on until either they lost or the enemy team was exhausted. What? And I see shades of this in the Black Tristar's famous Jetstream attack, where each member in turn fights against the same target, hoping to wear down and confuse an opponent they cannot beat on their own. It didn't work out for them, but you got to admit it was a solid plan. The Black Tri-Stars and their group maneuvers brought up a lot of questions about fighter planes, uh, as well as some of the other things that happen in these episodes. So, Like Sayla practicing her touch and go. Indeed. Uh, so first, the easy part. Uh, what is a touch and go? A touch and go, also called a circuit, is a common maneuver when learning to fly fixed wing aircraft. The pilot lands on a runway and takes off again without coming to a complete stop. It allows for more landings per hour of instruction time. Now on to the Black Tri-Stars and their jet stream attack, <laughs> uh, which made me wonder about other formations and group maneuvers. There are plenty of resources online that detail aerial dogfight tactics, but because in this episode the focus is on maneuvering together, I'm going to focus on formation flying and maneuvers that involve more planes than a one-on-one -on -one dogfight. Formation flying developed in World War I, with fighters escorting reconnaissance planes, and squadrons were quick to realize that flying in pairs improved both pilot survival and mission success. By 1918, fighting units were always at least two aircraft. Uh, the VIC, or V formation, was frequently used. It is what it sounds like, at least three planes, sometimes more, with the lead plane at the point of a V, and then wingmen on either side. Like geese. Uh, indeed. <laughs> Looser combat formations became the norm after the first combats of the Battle of Britain, where pilots found that maintaining certain formations made them easier targets. Germany had just participated in the Spanish Civil War and had used that time to develop new fighter techniques. 
One of the techniques that comes out of this time is called the finger four formation. Imagine a V, but one side is shorter than the other. (laughs) I will, of course, post pictures. It is comprised of a lead plane with one wingman on one side and two on the other. Um, Although it had been developed independently by several air forces during the 1930s, it really didn't come into broad use until World War II. This group could then split into two pairs for better maneuverability during dogfights. They could also be wider spaced, which lets the pilot spend less mental energy on maintaining close formation and more on situational awareness and scanning for the enemy. One maneuver that can be performed by a pair of planes, and this was somewhat reminiscent of some of what we see the Black Tri-Stars do, uh, is called a thatch weave, which is named for John S. Thatch, the aviator who invented it. It is also called a beam defense position, which feels very (laughs) sci-fi. I don't know what beam they're talking about. (laughs) It was developed specifically to deal with the maneuverability and speed of Japan's Zero Fighter. This is another one where I'll post helpful diagrams. But basically, the flight paths cross of of the two planes flying together, or four planes flying together. Their flight plans cross in such a way that if an enemy chases one plane, it puts them directly in the sights of the other plane. Its first combat use was in the Battle of Midway in 1942, where it proved very effective, and it, and basically all of the above-mentioned formations for that matter, are still in use today. Why this reminded me of the Black Tri-Stars is they're sort of staggered, one behind another but not directly behind, sort of behind and to the side. And in dodging the first one, Amuro theoretically puts the Gundam directly in the sights of the second. And the second would have, you know, a split second before Amuro could react to fire on him as he gets around the first. Because it's Amuro and because (laughs) he is just so good with the Gundam, they're not able to capitalize that. And he, in fact, gets a surprise attack on them. Although the first time they do the jet stream attack on him, after the jet stream attack, they end up in a triangle with Amuro in the center and all three doms facing him. Mm. A little like the thatch weave. Yes. Yeah, one description that I read from when they were testing it, uh, the pilot who was supposed to mimic an enemy plane attacking uh, mentioned, oh, it worked perfectly. Every time I thought I had a bead on you, every time I thought I could, I had you in my sights, I noticed the noses of the other planes <laughs> pointing at me. <laughs> I couldn't get a I couldn't get a clear shot without putting myself in danger, basically. There are also some good quotes by Japanese aces who when they first encountered the thatch weave were completely stymied and very frustrated and angry <laughs> about it. The thatch weave is interesting. I think I mentioned uh, the development of the thatch weave is interesting. I think I mentioned in a previous episode that when U.S. intelligence first got reports about the performance of the Zero, they did not believe that it was aeronautically possible for any aircraft to do that. And so they did not take any steps to prepare for fighting this phantom aircraft that couldn't possibly exist. One of the few people who actually believed those reports was Thatch. And he started basically on his own without any support from the rest of the Air Force, or I guess at that point he was a naval aviator, I think, um, developing these tactics and telling his friends in the Air Corps about them. Well, and plotting them out with like matches on a table, right? You know, he's he's laying it out with small figures and kind of moving everything around and trying to figure out how it would work. Because obviously, if you're going to have flight paths cross, somebody has to go under and somebody has to go over. Uh, I believe the person who's not being chased goes under because then they can fire on the belly of the opposing plane. Mm. 
Well, and this necessitated this necessitated a change in the organization of the squadrons because I believe before the thatch weave was introduced, the U.S. was flying wings of three fighters, mm. and the thatch weave uses two or four, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so they had to add an extra plane into the formation so that they could do either two doubles or one four person. Yeah. One other thing I read about the added flexibility introduced in flying in the finger four formation was previously when you were flying in a V, only the lead plane was looking for the enemy. Everyone else was just focused on their distancing <laughs> and then would attack once the enemy was spotted, but they weren't they were just worried about maintaining formation for the most part, which left the rear of the formation very vulnerable. In the finger four, the formation is a little looser. Everyone's paying a little more attention. Whoever first sights the enemy plane or whatever the target is, they become lead plane. Mm. So even if in the formation you're one of the wings, if you're the one who says, oh, I got him, you become lead plane and everybody else follows you, which was a, a new thing at the time. Very cool. Yeah, it's all very interesting. There's a lot of good stuff on it. Uh, tried to keep myself to the bits that seemed most relevant to talking about the Tri-Stars, but it's possible we'll get into more of that when we have more mobile suit fights. Woo! Nina noticed earlier that the new G-whatever has a downward-pointed nose cone when it's in its fighter-bomber configuration, and this was interesting especially because the core fighter has got nothing of the sort, and it also tugged at both of our memories. We were sure that we had seen something like that before. Well, we dug into it, and now I get to tell you about an aeronautical design feature with a truly amazing name. <laughs> Are you ready for this? I'm ready. The Droop Snoot. <laughs> Is it really Droop Snoot? It was originally called the Droop Snoot, <laughs> and it was later the Droop Nose. But Droop Snoot is so much better. Yep, I am going to continue calling it the Droop Snoot for the rest of this segment. It is a distinctive feature on some supersonic aircraft, including, most famously, the Concorde supersonic passenger liner that started flying in, hey, 1976. The short version of the reasoning for the Droop Snoot, and I am going to keep calling it that, <laughs> is visibility. And the long version is visibility of the ground. See, the Concorde, another supersonic aircraft using the Droop Snoot, like the experimental Ferry Delta II or the Soviet-built Tu-144, had extremely long nose cones, and they would take off at extremely steep angles. So a nose cone oriented the standard way, in line with the longitudinal axis of the plane, would have totally obscured the pilot's view of the ground. And taking off and landing a plane is plenty dangerous enough when you can see what you're doing. So, the engineers developed a nose cone that would droop down to give the pilots a better view of the ground. And this was actually adjustable. Once in the air, the drooping nose cone could be raised into a more conventional position what? to improve the aerodynamics of the plane. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. But the G-whatever's nose isn't movable like the Concorde's. It just stays there, pointing ever so slightly downward. So, why? The answer is still visibility of the ground, but for a real comparison, we have to look at fighter jets, not passenger liners. Specifically, we're going to talk about some Russian planes, like the Su-27 and the MiG-29. Each of these has a distinctly downward-pointed nose cone. It might not be at quite as much of an angle as on the Concorde, but it is still a drooping snoot. There are three main reasons for this. First is that, for complicated aerodynamic reasons, the shape of the raised neck and downward pointed nose actually creates a substantial amount of lift for the aircraft. Second, just like on the Concorde, it gives the pilot and co-pilot better visibility of whatever is below them while they're flying. That could be the ground, or it could be an enemy aircraft or missile. And third, related to that, these Russian fighters used a technology called look-down, shoot-down radar. And it, uh, it does what the name says. 
its radar that allows the plane to track targets below it and then fire on them. This is actually really difficult because it's hard to get a radar signature of something when the ground is in the background. Mm. So this has to be very specialized radar. So this is installed into the nose cone and pointed toward its target, which is the ground, in order to improve the performance of the radar. Radar would not do much good in the Gundam universe because of all those Minovsky particles, but we get plenty of scenes in these episodes of Amuro using some kind of targeting sensors to look down and shoot down. I picked the Su-27 and MiG-29 as examples because they have quite the distinctive snoots. Neither was actually deployed at the time first Gundam was on the air. Neither would properly enter service until the early to mid-80s. But both were first flown in, hey, 1977. What are the chances? A neat tidbit I discovered while I was doing this research. The MiG-29 is actually two pieces. A front fuselage with the cockpit, the neck, etc. And the lifting body, which is the engines, the wings, all those bits. And the front fuselage can actually be detached from the lifting body and then attached to any other compatible airframe. Just like the (laughs) G-whatever. This silly combination toy is actually realistic. (laughs) Sort of. You would not want to detach the front fuselage in in flight. In (laughs) mid-flight. The other thing that the Black Tri-Stars made me think of with their morning rituals for their fallen comrade uh, was whether or not those are reflective of other military morning rituals in real life. First, there's a gun thrust into the ground with a helmet on it. I knew I had seen this imagery before, and it turns out it has a name, the Battlefield Cross. It's meant as a symbolic replacement of a cross or other grave marker and consists of the soldier's rifle stuck into the ground or into their boots with helmet on top and sometimes dog tags hung from the rifle. If the rifle is not put into the boots, then the boots are put alongside it or in front of it. It is commonly used for memorial services in the field since soldiers still in combat will likely not be able to attend their comrade's funeral. The Battlefield Cross is official. It's included in the U.S. Army Field Manual and is still in use today, although its first use dates from the U.S. Civil War, where it served the more practical purpose of marking where bodies were and who they were. The poem or prayer that the Tristars say reminded me of a poem, Lawrence Binion's For the Fallen, which was published in 1914 and written in honor of casualties of the British Expeditionary Force in World War I. The Ode of Remembrance is taken from this poem and consists of the third, fourth, and fifth stanzas, so it's fairly short. Uh, this ode is regularly recited at memorial services for World War I, so Remembrance Day and so on, um, obviously mostly in the United Kingdom and Commonwealth countries. Finally, the Black Tristars fire off their guns in a rough-and-tumble sort of gun salute. Uh, when we see these in other media, they tend to be more regimented. Everybody fires at the same time. I believe it's called a three-volley salute. Everyone has heard of the 21-gun salute, although that is, I think, for people of higher rank. <laughs> but it does feel as if that is what they are doing. They are doing a gun salute in their Black Tri-Star kind of way. The three-volley salute has a little bit of history, which is not quite relevant here, but is interesting. In wars, there would occasionally be ceasefires called so that each side could come out into the battlefield, into no man's land, and collect their dead. When the ceasefire was over and all of the dead had been collected, each side would fire a three-volley salute in order to signal that they had finished collecting their dead and they were ready to resume killing each other. という破壊の中でただ一つ物を作っていくことができるかしらね物を作る戦いは破壊だけでない 
人間ってそれだけでは生きていられないと私には思えたからよさあ選択は終わった In honor of Lieutenant Matilda, Lawrence Binion's Ode of Remembrance. They went with songs to the battle. They were young, straight of limb, true of eye, steady and aglow. They were staunch to the end against odds uncounted. They fell with their faces to the foe. They shall not grow old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. They mingle not with their laughing comrades again. They sit no more at familiar tables of home. They have no lot in our labor of the daytime. They sleep beyond their astral home. Matilda, I'm sure. Matilda is a strong person. It's a name. Just a quick note, the original line of the ode is they sleep beyond England's foam. We made a slight modification for Matilda Chewy. Next week, we'll return with episode 1.23, Battle in the Age of Mobile Suits, to talk about diagrams, mandatory minimum sentencing, just one Luftballon, amateur photography, a majestic sea flap flap, Zion learns the wrong lesson. Army brats. Hammerchan gets a makeover. Hayato needs glasses. An unusually large tank. You're in the army now. And transformations galore. Will you be able to survive? you do all of the podcast things subscribe share review and pledge your undying devotion to mobile suit breakdown for free on fine podcast services everywhere and on youtube join us on patreon for great bonus content access to the msb discord and to support the podcast just go to gundampodcast.com slash patreon you can follow us on twitter at gundam podcast on instagram at gundam podcast and on facebook at facebook.com slash gundam podcast and you can check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all our episodes, show notes, and more. Plus, you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, The Dom is the best-looking Xeon mobile suit of the war on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. 
This week's Wrong Gundam Opinion comes to us from our patron, Flying Grizzly. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The morning music for Lieutenant Matilda is A Mother's Morning by D. Yanki. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. range attack, triple dom. I, I don't remember the Japanese close range attack, but I'm pretty sure triple dom is actually just triple dom. Which were naturally, <laughs> which for obvious reasons they wanted to change. <laughs> really wanted all the different bits to... <laughs> Why have they never attached it to the gun tank? Uh, I want to see the gun tank attached to Sirens or screaming drops in the background. <laughs>